Welcome to Season 6 of Business Book Talk. Every week, we have a business book author talk about their book and discover why they wrote it. The conversations are casual in tone, but we try and dig a bit deeper into the subject of the book and discover the author's background and their core ideas. I'm sure you'll like this week's book, so let's get started. Hey everybody, it's Bob again. I've got Simple Sabotage, a modern field manual for detecting and rooting out everyday behavior that undermine your workplace. And I've got Robert Galford with me today. Robert, thanks for coming on the show. Happy to be here, Bob. All right, so you got a couple other authors that uh, were involved in the book. Can you just give me a slight description of what they were doing? Absolutely. My co-authors, Bob Frisch and Carrie Green, uh, who are partners in a small consulting firm, uh, actually... One of them was busy for some reason, heaven knows why, was busy reading an old copy of the Jerusalem Post when there was a reference to a CIA or the predecessors of the CIA who had actually created a field manual for how to engage in active sabotage. And Bob took a look at this and said, I think we have a book there. And he brought it to my attention, and we do have a book there. We did. <laughs> Yeah, it's you know it's very interesting because um, I, I had your book, you, you, your your public sent it, or you guys sent it to me, and um, I had it in my my to do list. And then on Facebook, this same document came up, and uh, it was probably because you guys were talking about and promoting the book. And uh, I thought it was amazing. I said, "Wow, this would make an amazing book." And then I looked up, and there was your book cover, looked the same, brought it out, said, "Oh my God, this is amazing!" So there you go, <laughs> bit of synchronicity. Exactly. Indeed. And it really is the story of a book about a book. Uh, you know, the fact that this uh, predecessor of the CIA, the Office of Strategic Services, who was conducting the Allied resistance in Western Europe, had actually created a, a field manual for how to engage in acts of sabotage on the part of the resistance, the Allied resistance who was working in Western Europe at the time. Well, and I also love that the, you know, the premise of the book is like, read these sabotage notes. I mean, it's a much longer document. I think you guys just took the the uh, the, the tips for sabotage, but the, I mean, the document goes on and on. But um, what's fascinating about the book is if you're a manager in an organization or, or you own the company, uh, you read some of these things and you start thinking of people in your organization. Oh, this is like, Bill is sabotaging me. I didn't even realize that. Well, that's exactly right. And, you know, as you said, the, the book was really written about Primarily, it was how do you pile oily rags in a corner and flick a match in it that no one will see, or how do you short-circuit wires or ruin machinery. <laughs> um, but then in the middle of this book, he's got this unexpected section where he says, if you are working in an organization or a meeting or conferences or offices, here are some of the things that you can do. And that's where he starts with this list that says, insist on doing everything through channels. Whenever possible, refer matters to committees haggle over precise wordings of communications. And as you start to read down the list and as you show it to people, they say, just as you've described, Bob, oh my gosh, this is what's happening in my organization today. Now, what I wanted to ask you, this is going to kill you, um, when you were putting the book together, which type of sabotage were did you discover that you were doing to yourself in your organization? Oh, that's a great question. You know, And I think what that really shows is that there's sort of a little bit of the saboteur in all of us. Uh, and I think, and, and again, what we're really after are not the saboteurs. We're after sabotage behaviors. That's what we want to root out. Uh, but for me personally, 
got to be making speeches. Um, somebody uh-huh. has once said, you know, Rob, you can make a sentence out of a syllable. <laughs> Well, you know, it, it's it's interesting because you know I was going through the book and and it chapter after chapter is like, oh my goodness, this is so relevant for today because there's so many people that don't understand that just because you're doing your job and you think you're doing your job well doesn't mean you're helping the organization. It's a real problem, and I think the hardest thing it is for a manager is to sit down with somebody saying, you know, Joe, I know you, you, you're trying to do a great job and you're trying to perfect this particular technique, but you got to start perfecting and you got to move the project forward and getting a lot of pushback because they think that you're sabotaging their ability to do their job and they're going to get in trouble for it. So my question is, is, is for you going through the book and writing the book and, and, and really thinking about these things, how should somebody approach approaching somebody about having uh, sabotage style um, working habits? Uh, you, well, you you know you've got uh, you, you, I think you actually put your finger on it exactly. It, we we can talk a lot about the impact it's having, and I think the thing that you first point out is that people really don't, for the most part, people do not realize that they are having this kind of sabotage impact. Um, and so part of it is how do you even create the basis for the conversation, whether that's an individual one-on-one conversation when you have somebody who is, thinks they are acting you know, the right way, and when you have a whole organization that tolerates the behaviors. And so you have both of those kinds of things that go on. Um, so in terms of the individual one, part of this actually helps by creating the conditions so people will start to say, even to raise the issue, are we, do we have sabotage behaviors around here? Um, that, in some ways, is a disarming, but if you, and if you have the time, a pretty effective technique, rather than just going straight into somebody and saying, you know, you're sabotaging the organization, even with your best intentions. So we try to encourage organizations to actually think about the impact that these kinds of behaviors can have, and then it becomes possible to do the oh my gosh, am I one of these people? Or as Miss Piggy would say many years ago, moi, how could you, you know, possibly, possibly how, how could you accuse me of that? Um, so working on the collective impact is a great, or at least raising the consciousness from the collective impact is a great first step. Yeah, for sure. The other thing that's very good about the book is, and you know, a lot of people are, are listening, say, well, why would I want to know all these things? What am I going to do? And you actually have the solutions in, in, in the book as well. It's like, okay, if you find that you've got this problem, this is how you tackle it. And sometimes it's not just one solution. It's a series of, of, of uh, answers or steps. Um, you call them fixes, which is nice. Um, what was your, what was your, uh, favorite fix? And I know that's a ridiculous question to ask because you've got so many great ones here, but there must have been some type of sabotage that you really harmonize with. Oh, man, I totally know that. And then the fix is harmonized for you as well. well it's interesting. You know, and here I am back at my favorite, which was indeed the sabotage by speech. <laughs> and there's some great stories in there that go on at the individual level. But as far as we're concerned, there are a number of things that go on. One is you have the right people in the room. Second thing we talk about is, uh, is this supposed to be a speech or is this supposed to be a dialogue? And either way, we believe in assigning a timekeeper for, for meetings, uh, which basically say, you know, we're, we're going to either move, either have a moderator or a timekeeper. Um, my, my friends Bob and Carrie actually have a basketball shot clock 
that they carry around with me that makes this really annoying noise if people violate the time contract on how much time anybody has to speak. I mean, it's like really, it, it, it's a buzzer from, from, a, from a basketball game. It's amazing. Wow. You would need coffee to stay awake in that meeting. No. The other thing that it really does, it, it, in some ways, it disarms by humor. Uh, it doesn't put people on. Well, the last thing you really want to be doing is embarrassing somebody or making them feel bad. So being able to use a little bit of, uh, you know, there were times when we need to have tough, serious, individual conversations, but not all the time. My favorite is spotting the haggle because really that drives me nuts. It's like, just get on with it. Come on. And, and it's like, what about this? What about that? For you, what did you think was the best approach for, for dealing with, with the haggler or somebody that can never get around to, to closing or, or making the ask? Oh, that's a great question. And by ask, and it's a lot of it's what you ask and when you ask. So the, the best single thing I can, I can suggest to people is be specific about the feedback you want. If you don't want speech hagglers, grammar police, defenders, wordsmiths, to emerge, you got to set the boundaries. You got to say, here's what I'm looking for. Uh, I'm looking for, you know, either it's input on, I'm not really looking as much for wording unless it's completely off track. Uh, but this is really about, for example, uh, the topic. So we try to keep people on three T's on time, on task, and on topic. Um, the other thing is, we also, it's a, we're a big believer in uh, it's sort of just be careful what you wish for. Um, so part of that says circulate in advance the material that may need the feedback and then let people know I may not be able to inco- incorporate all these comments, uh, but I'm going to ask for it. Or you ask her after the meeting to say, send me your feedback uh, and we'll try to incorporate as many in. But try not to process it at the meeting because then it really does become a word fest and let's call it the word, the word fight. Yep. Well, it's and uh, nickel and diming is the other one that drives me nuts. Uh, you know, it's people trying to uh, create, like you're saying, perfect speeches or perfect presentations, and then uh, documents that are unequivocal. It, it, it's irrelevant. It's like just everybody at the meeting needs to know what where we're moving. We don't need to know it down to the nth detail. Um, but many many people cannot communicate. Um, any other way except for that way. Uh, so how do you how do you create an environment where uh, you can basically call people out, or is it something you have to kind of wait until the end of the meeting and go visit people and slowly educate them? No, I think you raise an important point. One is, can we at least start, and we're big believers in ground rules, in starting with the ground rules, uh, which is, which, for example, when we talk about howling, it may be grammaticals, yes, glaring typos, yes, uh, nuance, let's wait. Uh, and that's one of the kinds. Of, so we're big believers for all kinds of meeting behaviors, including when we have to create or construct a document. The other thing is, let's not make the perfect, let's not be the great or the perfect be the enemy, the pretty good or the appropriate. So if you're sending something out as a legal document or to cl- customers or clients that's changing, you know, the terms and conditions of your you know, arrangement with those people, of course you want to be precise. And they're, you know, that, that's exactly what we want to do. But we don't have to apply that same sort of standard when we're dealing with internal communications, for example, just among a small group of people. Well, you know, a lot of times I'm dealing with people that are just starting up an organization or, or starting up a company, and uh, they're in that stage of, like, building a business plan, and, we, you know, we need some marketing plan stuff, and, and I, I can't go to these guys and say, I'm not going to build you a marketing plan for free, uh, but they have no money. So it, you kind of get 
you kind of run into this, um, I can't help you because you're not ready to be helped type of situation. Uh, and you really, when dealing with those type of situations, they have all the time in the world because they're not really trying to solve problems. They're just trying to build a business plan, get some funding and, and start. Then they'll have a bunch of problems that I can help them with. Right. So um, really at the, at, the, at the end of the day, part of sabotage uh, is being aware of where you are. I mean, it's being self-conscious and, and stepping away from what you perceive as your reality and looking at what you're doing and looking what your organization's doing and, and basically ha asking yourself some tough questions. So for you, what do you think is a, is a good strategy if you're a, a manager in an organization? And we've kind of touched on this, but I want to go a little bit deeper. How does a manager deal with... Um, that that part of it is getting people to be conscious of the sabotage. Ah, yeah. I guess we we often look at this and say, okay, what's the problem? We almost have a if we could imagine almost three columns. One is what's the problem we're trying to solve, or what's the issue we're trying to resolve, or what's the goal we seek to achieve. Sort of that starter question. And then it's simply, what are the enablers? What are the disablers? Let's start to write those things down really quickly. Just give me the top three ones, I might say, to, to someone, as you've described, one of your clients in a, uh, in a let's call it new to startup mode. Uh, three biggest things you're getting that, can, that can make this happen. Three biggest things that can get in the way. And just to start at least to give them a framework. Then you can start with the disablers, the get in the way kinds of things. We can see if they're sabotage behaviors. Because there are different types of uh, sabotage behaviors. Some of them are structural sabotage, and I think that's one of the important things. Something about the way you're structured. Sometimes they're decision-making uh, sabotage. Sometimes it's communication sabotage, what we say and how we try to say it. And finally, sometimes it's just personal behaviors. And there are sabotage, there's sabotage that falls into that category as well. Um, so part of it is just understanding what we're up against. Is it, are these issues structural, communications, decision-making, or personal behaviors questions? Yeah, and if you have a framework, it makes life a lot easier because then you're able to kind of break it down into small enough chunks and all three of those things are subtly different but vastly different at the same time. And it definitely, I could see that could really streamline making people aware of it and, and moving forward. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, and we, don't want, we don't want to have, not everything fits into every framework. At least having some structure starts the conversation. We kind of touched on this a little bit with a previous question, but I wanted to ask you about what was your aha moment when you're going through this, uh, you're, you know, you're conscious of, of uh, the sabotages, and now that you've written the book, you've really concentrated on it. But what was something that you, you know, already knew prior to doing the book, but when you wrote the book, you really, really got it on a bedrock level and went, had an aha moment? Oh, that's a great question, Bob, and I can tell you exactly what it is. I see it in so many different kinds of organizations, literally across industries. And this was the one that it was literally, we had written this chapter, and then in one week, every single time we were, I was in the middle of one of these kinds of conversations with, with senior leaders in those organizations, it was, and in a small and large industry didn't matter, it was around decision-making and it was around decision rights. And we started to, to really push people a little harder uh, and say, how do we find decisions getting reopened? Uh, do you, is it clear whose decision, whose call this really is? And so everything that surrounded decision making turned out to be the big one uh, for me in terms of that aha, that organizations just you know, stumble dramatically over the lack of clarity sometimes about who's, you know, what's the decision, 
whose call is it, and I can give you a little framework for that, um, and then how you make sure there's adherence to the decision after it's made. Hmm. You mentioned uh, the word decision rights, if I heard you correctly. What does that mean? Oh, in our view, uh, there are a number of, of decision rights matrices and implementation ones. But the one I like is one that simply says, okay, whose call is this? Who's got what well, might refer to as the make right? And there are four kinds of rights. There's make, ratify, include, and notify. And if somebody has, this is, this is my decision to make, I may have to get approval for it, but that's a make right. That's often different from the the ratification right. So, for example, let's say you were in, you know, let's say you had to bring it to an executive committee. You know, you're running a particular small part of a small business, and you have to bring it to whether it's the board of directors or the executive team. They may have the right to approve it or disapprove it. They don't have the right to go in there and say, no, we don't want you to do X and Y and Z, green and blue, because that's meddling. But they do have, let's call it the approval right, and that's what the ratify is. And you have to sometimes you very often find the make right is to, whose, whose decision it is is different from the ratification right. Like in any board of directors, you know, it's not their decision to say we're going to invest in the blue machine versus the green machine, but they are going to say yes or no, we're going to spend the money on the machine. So make, ratify, include. Who do you include in the decision making process? Who do you get in, input from? Not that they have the decision right. But they certainly, because you know where people get really, really cross, it's when somebody says, why wasn't I included in that decision? How come you didn't consult me before you made that decision? How could you possibly have made this decision when I'm the one who's going to be operating the machine? And you didn't even ask me. So that's the include, right? Uh, and then the last one is notify, to let them know a decision's coming or has, has been made. Why wasn't I informed that this was actually happening? So make, ratify, include, notify. You know, I've, I've had this come up many, many times. Everybody's had this come up where you, you're working on a project. The boss has said, hey, you know, I need to do this, da, 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 get it done. Uh, you do it. You send them updates. You send them updates. And then you finalize it on the assumption that they've approved everything because he hasn't got back to you. And you give him the final product. And then he actually looks at it and reads it and starts correcting stuff. Doesn't it just frost you? In it's like, God, well, I mean, you just wasted 50 or 60 hours of, of the company's time and a bunch of staff. That's, that's, that's very, very gnarly staff sabotage. It's absolutely right. And sometimes it's, you know, it, it, it can be a leader who does this. It can be a colleague who does this. It can even be a subordinate who does this, you know, or a peer. It doesn't really matter, but it is absolutely frustrating. And that's one of the reasons we really try to put in some kind of check mark to say, are you with me? Because I'm going to proceed. Um, we often use the phrase, silence means assent. If I don't hear from you, I'm, I have to make the assumption that this is correct. Are you with me? And you may have to say it a couple of different ways and put it in writing versus a voicemail versus a cover note. You know, it doesn't matter, but we really, you know, we've, we, we want to make sure that people are very, very clear because it's just so frustrating. Or, you've, you know, you've gone down the path and then somebody reopens the decision at worst. You know, not only you put in the 50 or 60 hours, but you've taken it to the next step. And then they say, not so fast. Yeah. And you've already okay. spent a bunch of money. Yeah, which, and you're right, exactly, which is why we really are, you know, we'd rather have people over-communicate and be a pain in the neck about it at that point to simply say, are you sure you are comfortable with this or, you know, we're going to move forward unless I hear, unless you tell me to the contrary, in bold, underlined. Yeah, well, I think a lot of it, too, is is uh, the misuse of, of, of deadlines. They say, well, the deadline is June 14th, and then everybody says, well, June, that's the only deadline. I say, no. 
that's the drop dead deadline. There's 57 other deadlines that we have to reach. And nobody says, oh, by the way, here's the copywriting. The deadline for this to get approval from you is 24 hours. If you don't get back to us in 24 hours, we're just going to use this. And then you can't change it. It's not like, oh, no, there has to be a consequence if you miss it. And I think there's a, a real misuse of, of, the, uh, of consequences where you basically give a person an opportunity and if they drop the opportunity, they, they don't have the right to come back and say, oh, no, now I've had a chance to look at it. So, well, it's too bad. So, yeah, but there's huge mistakes as well. It's not our problem. It's your problem. And there's something in that which say, it, you know, not just if I don't hear from you, I will you know, I, I will proceed ahead. The second sentence that that sometimes has to come, if you need more time than that, such as 24 more hours, please let me know immediately. Yeah, ASAP. You know, you got, you got to kind of hit the double under, the double underscore on it. Because otherwise it drives people nuts. It's just not fair. Well, the whole thing with, uh, with communication and, and most organizations are, are uh, not very good at it because they don't, they don't teach communication. And, and I just think that it's just weird that organizers think that everybody's a master communicator. Uh, people don't know how to do email properly. They don't know how to use CC properly. They don't know how to use their phones properly. I mean, they've got all these communication tools, but nobody in the organization that is a master trainer and everybody's going to lunch to do how to communicate better. Well, you know, you, in fact, you've put your finger on some of the, the, the sabotage rules that we identified for modern day that were not a were not written in 1943 simply because they couldn't be and and so we created a couple of additional sabotage rules for modern times and you absolutely put your finger on the very first and most important of them which is what we generally refer to as a sabotage rule number nine which is cc everyone or reply all and the nightmares that you know simply email wasn't around in 1943 so literally, if you think of what CC stands for, it means carbon copy. Um, if you show this to whether they're folks who are millennials or even born later than that, many have never even seen carbon paper. And literally, once you know, not not that long ago in history, if you wanted copies made, it was dependent upon the strength of the typist that they could have one sheet of carbon paper and two or two. So you didn't have massive amounts of copying. There was nothing electronic. Uh, so that is now the number one modern rule that I that I would give people, which is, you know, how do you monitor CC everyone? Yeah, well, the the best rule I got is is uh, from a guy from Harvard, and uh, he basically said if you CC anybody, you give them instructions. So I'll I'll and that's at the top of the the email. So it'll be CC Frank. This is an FYI. You don't have any actionables on this email. Right. No then action can, required. Yes. Right. And then they yeah. can just like glance and delete, glance and delete. But in your records, you can show you did your due diligence. He can never come back to you and say, well, you never told me. And so, well, yeah, I did. You had 13 emails that basically showed you. And there's three of them that say if you, you know, it, it goes all the way back to spending, you spending a little bit more time so you save a tremendous amount of time in the long run. Well, you've also, you started by putting your finger on something when you said, you know, they don't teach communication, they don't teach writing, mm -hmm. they don't teach email. So many of these things, people say, oh, come on, it's like teaching me listening skills. I don't have a hearing problem. I know how to listen. You know, I know how to, I know how to use a keyboard. I know how to write. And it turns out that it is these fundamental, very basic elements that create the sabotage. Yep. 
Exactly. Well, assumption. One of the biggest saboteurs is, is uh, oh, I just assume you need that done. How, how, how can people think that? My biggest fear, and I put this in emails all the time, is like, hey, I'm assuming this, and I will say, I'm assuming this. Get back to me if I've made a, a false statement or if there's any inaccuracies, blah, blah, blah. And a lot of that happens when I'm creating letters of intent with people so that if things do go hairy in the future, I've got a very documented, very transparent communication system where it shows like no he was asked on several occasions to clarify and he didn't clarify and now he's coming back and said he didn't get that opportunity yeah and i, and I think you're, you do yourself and other people will do themselves a favor by remembering that i mean we're not we're not trying to over lawyer things here but what you started but look i have a here are my starting assumptions or again this is based upon the following key assumptions it really is not just not just to cover your, you, yourself. It's really to make sure that you're not going to waste their time or their money as well. Oh, absolutely. And, and you, you know, many people don't understand what comes out of my mouth is different than what you're hearing. I don't care how good a hearer you are because my thought processes and my vocabulary and my experience, I'm making all sorts of subliminal assumptions when I'm speaking. And f unless you're really good at what you're doing, Nine times out of ten, there's got to be at least one or two questions you have anytime anybody says anything. Of course, you can't get too pedantic either, right? Because then, then you become saboteur. But at the same time, you know, we just all we are really striving for is kind of oh, I would say one is clarity, the other is clearing the underbrush just a little bit. Because these are the things that really trip people up and trip organizations up. In fact, that was that was what was so interesting when we first did some the prevalent early work. We showed people the initial list of the saboteurs. Uh, behaviors that were identified. And we say, do you see this in your organization? And we surveyed a, a, you know, hundreds at that stage. Uh, and there was somewhere in the neighborhood of 75 to 85, 80% prevalence. In other words, we see enough of this that it affects our productivity. And then we said, okay, what do you think the impact is on productivity in your organization? Whether you measure it on output or revenues or profitability, you tell us, but what do you think the impact is? And they said those 75 or 80% who saw enough to affect productivity said they thought there was a 35 to 40% negative impact on their productivity as a result of these things. I wanted to go back because you mentioned uh, framework for decisions and decision making. Can we touch on that a little bit? Sure. And there are lots of these decision rights kinds of frameworks and these decision rights matrices. I happen to like make, ratify, uh, include, notify. Other people use something called rapid, there's racy, you know, there are a lot. All you have to do is write decision-making matrix or decision-making protocol, uh, you know, on Google, and you can rapidly get your choice of, uh, of any one of a number of these. Hey, I wanted to ask you, what's the best way to read the book? Is it a book you should read cover to cover? I mean, it's not a long book, but let's say you're, you desperately have zero, zero time. Um, what's the best way to read the book? Can you jump to any particular sabotage you think is relevant to your organization, or should you kind of read the intro? Yeah, very quickly, if they go through the table of contents, that's it. You know, the book itself is, is a very short read, as you know, and, and, and it's not very big physically. You know, there are literally eight, nine chapters, you can read the description of each chapter in a, it's got one sentence. So for example, we talk about uh, sabotage by committee, when possible referral matters to committees. You can tell if that's your issue. So, you know, you can kind of pick, pick one of the nine and start there. I mean, it really is not, it doesn't have to be done in sequence. 
Yeah, what I like it, it it's so fun to read that you know I I actually did that I you know flipped through the book and uh, sabotage by reopening discussions and I read that I had a couple of chuckles and so yeah I know a couple of people and oh this is this is kind of insightful right but then it was like oh I want to go back and and look at some of these other chapters I end up reading the whole book yeah well I'm glad to hear that because I was really I was our intent to make sure that we could make people either smile or snicker or laugh in the course of every chapter. And I think we, we, you know, we did a pretty good job of that. We, we, you know, we, we talk about, we were, we were going for what we call the eye rolling Olympics. <laughs> Say, oh my God. Can somebody really imagine that one? And, and we also did that with an eye towards not just one age group, uh, that some of this was actually focused at millennials who see some of these behaviors and just can't believe that people who've been in the workplace for 20 years are actually doing these things. Well, that begs the question is, as you work in an organization and you get more comfortable with the organization, uh, you kind of develop habits that you think are efficient, and then you kind of, they become ruts. And then after 15 years of doing it, you may be an incredible saboteur with not even realizing it because you haven't evolved, you haven't uh, re-educated yourself, you stopped reading business books, you stopped um, asking people of ways to improve the system because you have a complacent attitude. Is that, you think, uh, one of the things that not millennials, but anybody going into a new organization or, or into a new managerial position or whatever, you see all the things that nobody else can see because it's a fresh set of eyes? Well, I think, that, I think you've got two things that, that are absolutely right there. One is, let's call it that freshness of eyes, uh, which is really important. The other thing is that, that you have to overcome is the fallacy, what I refer to as the fallacy of transferability, which is, I've been successful on the last five jobs I've had. Why shouldn't I be successful on, on number six? Or, I've always done it this way and it's always worked for me. Why should I change that now? Uh, and the answer is because it may not work this time and because you haven't changed things in the past five times and because you have been in the workplace in an organization or in a particular kind of role for too long. And therefore, who's your new truth teller? Who's the person who really would not just suck up to you and say, oh, you're doing a great job here. Oh, I wouldn't worry about it. But somebody other than a loved one, other than like, uh, you know, you, perhaps your, your spouse or significant other who may not hesitate to tell you how you really are. Is there somebody who's really going to level with you? And if not, boy, you are in deep yogurt. You know, you, you mentioned that it's, it's an easy book to uh, get through, but really, you know, you go to the notes section and you look at the books that you're referencing. And, and uh, if you really wanted to read this book and truly get it and, and uh, move forward in your, in your career, there are a ton of other books that uh, you should be looking at. So um, if you take the, the learnings of the book seriously and you, you want to move forward, you've got a whole lot of reading ahead of you. Uh, yeah, but we wanted to make it yes, and we wanted to make it easy for people at the same time. So yeah. we we tried to give we tried to give them a little bit of the juice or a little bit of some of the nuggets from some of the reading and the work that we have either done or read, and said, hey, you want more? And that's what the notes are for. You want more of this? This is where you'll find it. Yeah, and and you know, really, if you if you're reading this book with an open mind, you're obviously going to see. Oh, I have you know a couple of uh, saboteur style techniques that I should maybe fix. How do I fix them? Then you've kind of got a problem. So it's nice at the end of the book that people can go, oh, okay, because it's based on the chapter, and you can go, oh, great. Now I've found a book that I can read to help me move forward and fix the problem, or I can suggest this book to Joe down in accounting to uh, maybe get rid of some of his uh, saboteur style techniques. Well, I, and I think that, what, that was really that was our goal was to be able to really use both a sort of a, a, a broad perspective to say, okay, do we have sabotage behaviors 
whether they're these eight or nine or sabotaging behaviors that get in the way of our productivity as an organization, whether they're on this list or not. And then are there specific ones that we really have to tackle or certain individuals we really have to get moving on? Hmm. Um, I wanted to know also, why did you think this book was important to bring out on the, uh, on the market today? Ah, uh, that's a really good question. Um, it, in some ways, it had nothing to do with the fact that we are 70 years or 75 years past uh, the end of World War II. Uh, one could, I guess, you know, try to tie it to some sort of anniversary edition. But I think what, what really made it particularly valuable today for us is that we started to see a lot of skepticism around bureaucracies, large-scale institutions. And we didn't, then we saw that what was really, people were really skeptical about wasn't just the large size institution, it was any institution where decision-making was slow or ineffective, where people really felt that there were, uh, I hate to be military, say landmines in the middle, but, but things were not happening as well as they could have. So this was a cry for productivity, largely based upon the fact that we see so many organizations uh, that are ineffective in dealing with customers and clients and employees. Well, I want to go back to decisions because I think that, you know, when you were talking about decisions and, and, and like the framework and, and all that type of stuff, do you think that organizations are struggling with making decisions that, number one, are relevant and, and number two, that are being decided quickly enough so that they can move forward. Because there's, you know, the, in, in um, Silicon Valley, there's this whole concept of, you know, fail, fail often, fail, yeah, fail yeah, fast, right. yeah, fast, just right. to move decisions along. So it's, it's okay to make a decision, but we're just going to fix it if there's a problem. Where if you have a very large bureaucratic style organization, it's almost impossible to do that because if you make a decision and you move forward, you can't stop the momentum. Hard to, right. Uh, and I think what that really is is the argument for, for let's call it rationality and calibration. You know, part of it is on on certain decisions, which are the ones where we can fail fast and move forward, and which are the ones that hey, this one really has consequences because it's you know, it takes the big ocean liner six six miles to to starboard, as they say. You know, it just takes an awfully long time for certain turns and certain things you can't put back in the bottle. But you got to figure out which are the ones you can, and which ones you can't put it back in the bottle. And I think that's true for every company, large or small. You know, what are the decisions that if we make them could really slow, if we don't make them quickly, are going to slow us down irretrievably. And if we make them on the other side, you know, one of those gigantic deaths that, that, that could really kill us. I think people, you know, if I have to look at it, I really think that decisions that are made too slowly hurt us more. Yeah, for sure. Well, um, the other thing is also, you know, with, with the emergence of uh, cost-effective big data, you could be making decisions that have a vast, vast, you have so much more information to make the decision on, and you can end up going down rabbit holes uh, with data, but really, at the end of the day, there's, there's a lot of strategies out there. It's like, look at, you know, let's do it, let's test it a little bit, and then let's move it forward and test it, and then when we've got it figured out, then let's roll it out big time. So you don't have to make a decision and then that's it. We can't go back on it. You can have a, a like a an evolving strategy for that particular uh, the movement or decision that you want to do within an organization if it's a critical decision. That's right. And I think the other thing that, you, that your, your comment just highlighted is there are certain decisions that fall into a separate category. When you are dealing with, for example, health, safety, environmental consequences, they take on a different 
kind of decision, then, gee, we might have to make we, we might have to make some adjustments along the way. You know, it's a, it's a different story when you're performing, let's say, surgery, so to speak, than if you are figuring out which which marketing or what you're going to use. And it's one of the reasons that we see a lot of marketing going on, as you well know, because I think you have substantial personal marketing expertise there. Um, but entities do test. They do try a couple of different campaigns, and they do see which one will resonate. So they don't, may not commit quickly, but you, you'll know in two weeks or four weeks or six weeks which of three possible campaigns may be more successful. Well, and I think also with organizations and, and, and sabotage, there's a big, big issue of trust. And, you know, there's been several great books written recently on, on trust and how important that is in an organization, but also when working with vendors and, and clients. If there's trust issues, that's a massive, massive problem with moving projects forward uh, relatively time effectively. Right, which is why, you know, it's funny you mentioned that. You know, I, I, 15 years ago when we wrote The Trusted Advisor and then three years after that when I wrote Trusted Leader, that was in some ways was the, the, the seed corn for what we're now seeing with simple sabotage, which is, you know, those, as you say, those, those fundamental elements of trust uh, are, while they are baseline, we now find them, you know, once again, if people aren't, can't trust each other enough to say, bad call, we've got to get rid of this one, or, hey, you know, cut it down there, Charlie, you've got to take a different approach here, then, then that, that's critical. You know, that's what gets in the way of these organizations. Yeah, exactly. How does an organization um, evolve out of a sabotage-style work environment? Ah, um, I think there are one is vigilance and consciousness that there are sabotage behaviors. And again, what we are striving for is not the is not hunting down and you know, pillorying the saboteurs and, and eliminating the saboteurs. This is about eliminating sabotage behaviors. So this requires vigilance and it requires practice. Uh, the same way, for example, that um, in healthcare, not terribly long ago, there was this whole thing about hand washing that they were discovering a lot of healthcare providers were actually not washing their hands as they went from patient to patient. Seems almost unthinkable. Uh, but they started to actually monitor and measure when medical providers, nurses, doctors, you know, healthcare givers in varieties of ways were not monitor, were not actually engaging in hand washing every time. And uh, that's an example of it. Then, you know, they started to chart it and talk about it, and it became, it, it, it got into people's consciousness. Just remind me of a client I had the other day, and, and uh, they actually sold hand sanitizers for hospitals. And I said, well, have you talk to the people that use these because my wife's in hospitals all the time. And he said, well, we talk with the administration and stuff. Well, you should talk to the people that use them because the biggest problem, you're creating a problem, you're not solving it. So when you sell these, uh, you know, these liquid packs you've got everywhere, you also have to sell a product that counteracts drying of the skin because people aren't using them because their hands are in pain because they're so dry. And he hadn't even thought about that. So part of coming up with a solution or a strategy to move out of a saboteur situation or, or, or an organization that, that has these tendencies is also to uh, figure out what was driving them to have those type of knee-jerk reactions as well. So sometimes it's not the people, it's just the structure of the organization forces people to have to do those weird decisions. That's exactly right. 
And then you get into things like structural sabotage. Yeah, well, you know, I think China has a major problem with that where they've kind of sabotaged themselves with, you know, um, internally where they're building stuff. People are quoting at incredibly uh, low costs and then trying to make a lot of profit off the top of it. And then they've got failure in in structures. So that's basically a country that's been sabotaging itself for years and years and years. And now that they've got a big problem where their products aren't trusted. There's many women that I know that say, well, I will not buy uh, any consumable product that's made in China because it's just too risky. I don't want to have cancer in 12 years. So to have that said about a country's product um, output is devastating for the long term of that country. Yeah, and I think that, you know, and in there, I, I think, lies a message for all of us, uh, which really is, gee, do we understand the consequences of some of the actions that we take, and could they actually be sabotaging our entity as well? So, for example, if we're insisting on a particular procedure, but it's the wrong procedure, you better figure that out. Exactly. Well, it goes all the way back to the beginning of our conversation about being present, being conscious, and being able to step away from the day-to-day, which is not an easy thing to do. People say, oh, okay, I'll just do that. No, it's brutally difficult to do, and it's one of the skill sets you have to have if you want to actually have an organization that isn't, you know, struggling because it's tripping over itself all the time. Right. In fact, we actually created something we call the the Sabotage Scorecard where we actually have, we list the sabotage behaviors and we have a couple of columns. Have you seen it? Have you been a victim of it? Have you actually done it? Um, and so it gives, it, it creates the dialogue for organizations to be able to say, yeah, we have a lot of people who've ch- checked off or ticked off a couple of those boxes in particular, whether it's advocating too much caution or, uh, you know, bringing up irrelevant issues or whatever it is. It gives, the, it points them in a direction. Yeah. Well, it gives them, you know, like you said, gives them a guide. And really, that's what's wonderful about yep. this book. It's it's quick, it's fast, it enables people to jump in, get it, and then action it because there's all these great little tips and solutions inside it. So it's not like, oh, you've got a big problem, see ya. It's like, no, here's the problem, here's the solution. It's it's a perfect product. Well, that's our hope. <laughs> hey, so I, I wanted to ask, where can people go if they want to learn more? Do you guys have an ongoing blog? We do. Uh, we have a we have a website called simplesabotage.com on which they can actually add their own little stories, not so little, little or big, stories where they've seen sabotage in their organizations, uh, and we're starting that, uh, as well as taking the sabotage survey itself just to give them a sense of uh, you know where we are in terms of those percentages that I talked about earlier, that 75 80% of prevalence and 35 to 40% of impact. Uh, So we would certainly ask and encourage people to go to simplesabotage.com. I wanted to ask you, you know, how are people reacting to the word sabotage? Because it's a very, very strong word. It's got a very negative vibe to it. And to ask people, well, we're, we're dealing with sabotage in the organization. They, they're thinking, oh, my God, we've got terrorists in our organization. And right. people like exactly. overreact big time, especially with the political situation going on in the world. So have you had any pushback because you use the word sabotage? It's a great question. We, we explored it very, very carefully before we put it out and uh, spent a lot of time talking to our publisher about it, publicists and those kinds of things. Is it too provocative a word? Uh, and the answer came back, uh, fortunately, I think for us, uh, in, in the negative, that's no, it's not too provocative, that what it does is it calls people attention to say, look, if these things go on in your organizations, you really are having 
sabotage, that is the unintentional or the unintended or unexpected negative results occurring. And so I, I think it helped bring the message forward, actually. Hmm. Fascinating. We've been talking about the book, Simple Sabotage, a modern field manual for detecting and rooting out everyday behavior that undermine your workplace. I've had Robert with me on the line today. Hey, Robert, thanks for being on the show. Hey, Bob. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the show. And don't forget to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. Like us at Facebook forward slash Business Book Talk. Follow the host on Twitter at Bob Garlic. Visit the website businessbooktalk.com for show notes and lots of other great interviews. See you next week.